on Canonical, we deal with subject matters that may not be suitable for some audiences. This episode contains graphic descriptions of murder and mutilation. Listener discretion is advised. Today's episode is also the second in a two-part series. If you haven't listened to part one already, pause this and go and listen to episode 19, Whitechapel, first. As Dr. Blackwell pronounced Annie Chapman dead in the early morning of September 30th, 1888, no one was prepared for this quick turnaround that her murderer was about to make. By 1.45 the same morning, yet another victim would be found, brutally murdered by the Enigma, who we know as Jack the Ripper. This is Canonical. Catherine Meadows was born in Graisley Green, Wolverhampton in 1942. She was the sixth child born to George and Catherine Meadows. The family moved to London not long after she was born and Catherine started school at St John's Charity School in Potter's Field. By 1857, however, both of Catherine's parents had died, her mother passing away in November 1855 after contracting tuberculosis. Four of the 12 Edo siblings were sent to Bermondsey Workhouse as orphans. While there, all four attended, attended an industrial school where they each learned a trade. Catherine managed to secure a job as a tin plate stamper at the Old Hall Works in Wolverhampton, but within months she was fired. She left her aunt's home after she lost her job, relocating to Birmingham, where she lived with her uncle Thomas Edo's. She soon found employment as a shoe polister in Leg Street but ultimately decided to return to Wolverhampton to live with her grandfather, who was able to secure her work as a tin plant stamper once again. She stayed in Wolverhampton for nine months before returning to Birmingham for a second time. It was during this time that she met Thomas Conway. Thomas was a former soldier who had served in the 18th Royal Irish Regiment. The couple had two children together, Catherine Anne and Thomas Lawrence, but appeared to have never married. Catherine did, however, start referring to herself as Kate Conway, later having Thomas's initials tattooed on her forearm in blue ink. The couple moved to London in 1868, residing in Westminster. There, they had a second son in 1873. Catherine began drinking during this time, causing tension between the couple. The quarrelling apparently became violent in the late 1870s, and Catherine was seen with black eyes and bruises on her face. She left Thomas and her two youngest children in 1880, and by 1881, she had met and was living with a new man named John Kelly. The pair had met at 55 Flower and Dean Street in Spitalfields. This was at the centre of London's notorious rookery. Soon after, she became known as Kate Kelly. She earned money with domestic work such as cleaning and sewing for the Jewish community in Brick Lane, but was also believed to have been working as a sex worker to pay rent. The couple also earned money by hot-picking seasonal work in Kent each summer. In September 1888, Catherine and John were returning to London after their seasonal work on foot. They journeyed with Emily Burrell and her common-law husband, whom they had met during the summer, until the halfway point of their trip, when Emily and her partner split off from Catherine and John, heading instead for Cheltenham. Emily is said to have given Catherine a pawn t- a ticket for a shirt, which Catherine put in the mustard tin she carried. They eventually reached London on September 27th, where they spent the night at a casual ward on Shoe Lane, and parted ways for the next evening. 
John at 52 Flower and Dean Street, and Catherine heading for the Mile End Casual Ward. She spoke to the superintendent there, whom she is said to have told that she was going to claim the reward that was being offered for the arrest of the Whitechapel murderer, saying she thought she knew him. Early in the morning of September 29th, Catherine headed for Cooney's lodging house to see John. She'd gotten into some kind of trouble at the casual ward and was turned out. John had decided he was going to pawn a pair of boots, so Catherine took them round to the pawnbroker on Church Street. The couple were seen together by Frederick Wilkinson eating breakfast back at the kitchen in the lodging house. By that afternoon, they had used up the money they were received, they had received when pawning the boots, so Catherine announced she was going to go and see if she could get some from her daughter in Bermondsey. She left John in Houndsditch at 2pm, telling him she wouldn't be any later than 4. At 8pm that evening, PC Louis Robinson came across a crowd outside 29 Algate High Street. They were surrounding Catherine, who was extremely drunk in a heap on the ground. The PC asked if anyone knew her, but no one did. So, he pulled her to her feet and leaned her against the wall, but realised as she began to slip sideways that she was too far gone. PC Robinson got the help from PC George Simmons to bring her to the Bishopsgate Police Station, where Sergeant James Byfield noted her arrival around 8.45. She was locked into a cell and quickly fell asleep. She was checked on multiple times during the night, until quarter past 12, when she could be heard singing softly to herself in her cell. At half past midnight, she called out to ask when she would be released. At five to one, the guards checked who was fit to be released. Catherine, now sober, was asked who she was and where she lived, to which she replied, Marianne Kelly and 6 Fashion, Fashion Street, before being released. She turned left out of the doorway, the wrong direction back to Flower and Dean Street, instead she appeared to have been heading toward Aldgate Hyde Street, where the PC had found her drunk earlier in the night. It would have taken her around 10 minutes to get to Mitre Square. So, there's a 30-minute gap in her timeline between when she leaves the police station to the time she was spotted by Joseph Lowend, uh, Joseph Hyam Levy, and Harry Harris as they left the Imperial Club on Duke Street. She was talking to a man, a man who Lowend described as being 30 years old, around 5 foot 7, with a fair complexion and a, mus- a moustache and a medium build. This man is said to have had the overall appearance of a sailor. At 1.45, less than an hour after Elizabeth Stride's body was found in Dutsfield Yard, Catherine Eddowes was found dead in Mitre Square. Police called Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown to the scene. He arrived around 2am. The following is an excerpt from his post-mortem of Catherine Eddowes. The body was on its back, the head turned to the left shoulder, the arms by the side of the body as if they had fallen there, both palms upwards, the fingers slightly bent, the left leg extended in a line with the body, the abdomen was exposed, right leg bent at the thigh and knee, the throat cut across. The intestines were drawn out to a large extent and placed over the right shoulder. They were smeared over with some feculent matter. A piece of about Two feet wide was quite detached from the body and placed between the body and the left arm, apparently by design. The lobe and oracle of the right ear were cut obliquely through, he continues. The face was very much mutilated. There was a cut about a quarter of an inch through the lower left eyelid, dividing the structures completely through. The upper eyelid on that side, there was a scratch through the skin on the upper left eyelid, near to the angle of the nose. The right eyelid was cut through to about half an inch. 
There was a deep cut over the bridge of the nose, extending from the left border of the nasal bone down near the angle of the jaw on the right side. This cut went into the bone and divided all structures of the cheek except for the mucous membrane of the mouth. The tip of the nose was quite detached by an oblique cut from the bottom of the nasal bone to where the wings of the nose join on the face. A cut divided from this divided the upper lip and extended through the substance of the gum over the right upper lateral incisor tooth. About half an inch from the top of the nose was another oblique cut. There was a cut on the right angle of the mouth as if the as if cut of a point of a knife. The cut extended an inch and a half parallel with the lower lip. There was on each side of cheek a cut which peeled up the skin, forming a triangular flap about an inch and a half. On the left cheek there were two abrasions of the epithelium under the left ear. The throat was cut across to the extent of about six or seven inches. A superficial cut commenced about an inch and a half below the lobe below and about two and a half inches behind the left ear and extended across the throat to about three inches below the lobe of the right ear. The big muscle across the throat was divided on the left side. The large vessels on the left side of the neck were severed. The larynx was severed below the vocal cord. All the deep structures were severed to the bone, the knife making intervertebral, marking intervertebral cartilages. The sheath of the vessels on the right side was just opened. The carotid artery had a fine hole opening. The internal jugular vein was opened about an inch and a half, not divided. The blood vessels contained clot. All of these injuries were performed by a sharp, sharp instrument like a knife and pointed. The cause of death was, was hemorrhage from the left common carotid artery. The death was immediate and the mutilations were inflicted after death. Catherine's murderer also took her left kidney and most of her uterus. The doctor concluded that the majority of the mutilations she had suffered at the hands of her killer was post-mortem. He notes that he believed the cut to her throat was her first wound and that she may have been lying on the ground when it happened. Catherine Eddowes was buried on Monday, October 8, 1888 in an unmarked grave in the City of London Cemetery. The Times said, The funeral of the victim of the Mitre Square tragedy took place yesterday afternoon in the vicinity of the city mortuary in Golden Lane. Quite a multitude of persons assembled to witness the departure of the cortege for the Ilford Cemetery. Not only was the thoroughfare itself thronged with people, but the windows and roofs of adjoining buildings were occupied with, by groups of spectators. The procession left the mortuary shortly after half past one o'clock. It consisted of a hearse of improved description, a mourning coach containing the relatives and friends of the deceased, and a broom conveying representatives of the press. The murders of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes became known as the double event. At 1.30am after the discovery of Elizabeth's body, but before that of Catherine, PC Watkins was on the beat in East London. His route took him through Mitre Square. Nothing seemed amiss. Ten minutes later, in a loop that took him along Church Passage in uh, Duke Street, PC James Harvey also passed by Mitre Square. While he did not enter the square itself, he would have been close enough to hear if anything untoward was going on, but heard and saw nothing. PC Watkins, meanwhile, was about to complete his loop back into the square. At 1.44, he was once again walking through. This time, he did something different. Goodness knows what made him do it but he shone the beam of his lamp to the left side, discovering Catherine Eddowes's disemboweled remains. On November 9th, John McCarthy realised that one of his tenants, Mary Jane Kelly, was behind in her rent. 
six weeks behind to be exact. It was time to see if she could pay up. So he tasked his shop assistant, Thomas Bowyer, with catching Kelly as she left her room that morning. Her room, 13 Miller's Court, was a converted bedroom from number 26 Dorset Street. When Thomas arrived, he knocked on her door twice before heading around the corner to look in the window. He first saw that two windows were broken, so he reached in to move the curtains aside so he could see if Mary was home. What he saw was not what anyone would expect. At first glance, it appeared that two lumps of meat were sitting on her bedside table. As his gaze drifted further into the room, he saw something that sent him running back to his employer's office. McCarthy returned with Thomas to Miller's court, and he too drew the curtains back to see what what his employee had. A bloodied corpse, mangled beyond recognition with body parts strewn across the bed. McCarthy sent Thomas to find a constable. He took off, soon running into Inspector Walter Beck and Detective Walter Dew on Commercial Street. He could barely get the words out. Another one. Jack the Ripper. Awful. Jack McCarthy sent me. Almost everything known about the fifth victim in the Canonical Five comes from Joseph Barnett, who Mary was living with uh, just prior to her death. Of course, his information comes from Mary herself, so some of it is contradictory and likely exaggerated. She was born in Limerick Island, but it's unclear whether this is the county or the town, and she moved to Wales with her family when she was young. Her father, John Kelly, worked in an ironworks either in Carnarvonshire or Cumminthshire. She had siblings, but again, it's unclear exactly how many. Both Joseph Bunny and a Mrs. Carthy, whom she'd lived with at one time, said that she was from a fairly well-off family, and Mrs. Carthy also stated that Mary was an excellent scholar and an artist of no mean degree. In any case, we know that Mary arrived in London in 1884, and according to Bunny, she went to work in a high-class brothel in the West End. By 1886, she was living in Cooley's lodging house, where she met Joseph Barnett. The couple moved from Brick Lane to Miller's Court, where they occupied a single room, known as 13 Miller's Court. By September of that year, Barnett had lost his job, and Mary was working as a sex worker again. Barnett soon decided to leave Mary, but this didn't happen until the night of October 30th, sometime between 5 and 6pm, when they had an argument, as reported by Mary's upstairs neighbour, Elizabeth Prater. Barnett says that the reason he left Mary was because she was letting other sex workers stay with her. He said, I shouldn't have left her if it had not been for the prostitutes stopping at the house. She only let them stay there because she was good-hearted and did not like to refuse them shelter on cold, bitter nights. Leading up to her death, Mary and Marie had Maria Harvey staying with her on November 5th and 6th. On the 7th, she is seen by Thomas Bowyer, who says she was talking to a man that closely resembled the man that had been seen with Elizabeth Stride. Barnett, who had visited Mary almost every day since they had broken up, saw her sometime between 7.30 and quarter to 8. She was apparently in the company of another woman, who was thought to have been Lizzie Albrook, who lived at number 2 Miller's Court. However, Mar- Maria Harvey also may have been the woman, but she apparently left at 5 to 7 that evening. By 8pm, Barnett had left Mary and returned to Buller's boarding house where he'd been staying. At the time, Julia Verturney of No. 1 Miller's Court went to bed. Between this time and 11.45, there isn't a confirmed sighting of Mary Jane Kelly. However, she may have been seen in Britannia with a young man, apparently very drunk. She is seen by Marianne Cox, who lived at 5 Miller's Court with a man around... 
35 or 36, who was about 5 foot 5 and shabbily dressed in a long coat, who was carrying a pail of beer. Kelly has heard singing A Violet from Mother's Grave around the same time. It's around this point that witness testimonies start to diverge a little. One thing for certain, though, was after Barnett left that night, the next time he saw Mary Jane Kelly, he could only tell it was her by her eyes and her hair. This brings us back to the morning that Mary's body was discovered. When police eventually entered the room, there was a fire burning in the fireplace, and Mary's clothes were neatly folded on a chair nearby. She was nude except for a chemise, and was positioned in the middle of the bed, which was up against the wall. Of all the five canonical victims, her mutilation was the worst. Her right arm was partially disconnected from her body, legs spread wide and placed at right angles. Dr. Thomas Bond joined Dr. Phillips at the scene. His report said, The whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs was removed, and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissues of the neck were severed all round to the bone. It was evident that in the relative safety of Mary's room, the ripper had taken his time. He had the privacy to carry out all of his compulsions without fear of being interrupted. As with the other victims, Mary's innards had been piled to the right of her body, but this time there was more. Her uterus, kidneys and one of her severed breasts were placed beneath her head. Her left lung was torn and heart completely missing. The lumps that Thomas Bauer had first seen when he'd peeked through the broken window were actually flaps of skin from her thighs and abdomen piled up. The question of when exactly Mary was killed is a little difficult to answer. Elizabeth Prater was woken around 4am and heard someone cry, Oh murder! But the phrase was common in Whitechapel and at the time she played at no heed. But her testimony, as well as Sarah Lewis's, who had also heard the cry, gave the most weight to the Metropolitan Police's estimation that Mary was killed around 3 or 4am. However, Caroline Maxwell was adamant that she had seen Mary that morning around 830 she did admit that she didn't know Mary that well and may have been mistaken, as most experts discount Maxwell's testimony and most assume that she was likely killed in the early hours of the morning. Mary was laid to rest in the Roman Catholic Cemetery in Laystone, with Joseph Barnett and John McCarthy ensuring that she was buried according to the traditions of the Catholic Church. Mary's death was the last of the five canonical victims, but the question remained, who was the killer? Before we dive into the most popular suspects, we need to talk a little about the investigation. While we, in the 21st century, are well acquainted with the serial killer archetype, the Whitechapel murders were unlike the Metropol anything the Metropolitan Police had ever seen. In fact, in 1888, the term serial killer didn't even exist yet. That being said, crime was certainly rampant in Whitechapel. Most of the murders in the area were perpetrated by street gangs or the result of domestic violence. Crimes under the umbrella of ripping were mostly robberies, revenge killings or random violence. Forensics was almost non-existent, excluding medical examinations uh, used to determine causes of death. Autopsy results were often disagreed upon between medical professionals and coroners, likely due to the fact that at the time, coroners who were elected were often not from medical backgrounds at all. Police's best hope of catching the Ripper 
was catching him in the act. And as such, plainclothes officers as well as uniformed constables flooded Whitechapel's streets. Jack, however, managed to elude police every time, often mutilating his victims with officers patrolling right around the corner. Of course, their failure to catch the Ripper earned the police a lot of flag from the press. Many satirical cartoons and articles condemning the police were released on a daily basis. The main target of the press was the police commissioner, Sir Charles Warren, who had already had a bad rap with the police for his role in Bloody Sunday. There were many controversial decisions in the investigation. Time and time again, requests from citizens to offer a reward for information in the case were denied. Sir Warren was convinced that a reward would do nothing but encourage false leads, hindering the police's, uh, police further. However, the decision not to offer a reward was not his most polarising decision. Following the double event on September 30th, a piece of Catherine Eddowes' apron was found around the corner from the crime scene. It was placed underneath a graffito which read, The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. It was, it was discovered by uh, PC Alfred Long, who had searched nearby for suspects or other evidence but found nothing, almost as if the fabric had been strategi- strategically placed for someone to find. Sir Charles Warren ordered that the writing be washed away before the sun rose, supposedly to, to subvert a riot, but many believe that someone on the police force was involved in a cover-up. Of course, there is the sus- suspicion that the writing may not have been from the Ripper at all, there are two clear camps, one considering it to be relevant to the case and one not. It certainly fits the narrative of a scheming psychopath who is taunting the police. This decision was criticised and even today it still draws scrutiny. Sir Warren resigned on November 8th, the day before Mary Kelly was murdered. Perhaps most, the most infamous parts of the investigation were in fact the letters, allegedly from the Ripper himself. Sir, uh, Dozens upon dozens of letters were sent, the most famous of which is perhaps the Dear Boss letter received on September 27, 1888. At the time, like many others, it was thought to be a hoax, but three days later, after Elizabeth and Catherine's murders, the central news agency who had received the letter reconsidered, particularly after they heard of the removal of Catherine's earlobe, which was eerily similar to a promise the author wrote in the letter. The letter reads as follows. I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they'd look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them until I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger ear bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha <laughs> The next job I shall do... I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers for just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back until I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly. Jack the Ripper. Don't mind giving giving me the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Haha. <laughs> The 
There are more than 500 people who have been identified as possible suspects. We're going to stick to just a few, but first we're going to have a quick look at the th- uh, theories as to who the murderer was. Some suggest that the killer was maybe a doctor. After all, several of the victim's organs had been moved, removed with a precision. Maybe the ripper was an educated upper-class person. Others think that maybe he was a butcher or a tradesman, maybe employed during the week, which would explain why the murders happened on or near the weekend. One thing to take into account is that many of the suspects were proposed years after the investigation, most linked to the case by contemporary documentation or even remote connections. Being that anyone around during the Ripper murders has long been dead, today we are free to speculate without having to provide substantial evidence. However, in the interest of integrity, we're going to look first at a couple of the contemporaneous police suspects. The first is Montague John Druitt. Druitt was an Oxford-educated man from a fairly good family, and many believe he was behind the murders, because he was initially reported to be a doctor. This was soon revealed to be incorrect, and Mr. Druitt was in fact a barrister who had been working as an assistant schoolmaster. He was not local to Whitechapel, as many believed the Ripper to be. The murders also stopped not long after the death of Mary Kelly, and people point to Druitt's apparent suicide as evident that he was in fact the Ripper. However, investigators concluded that Druitt was already dead at the time of Mary Kelly's death and discounted him as the killer. Another of law enforcement's suspects was Aaron Kosminski who was admitted to Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum in 1891. Kosminski had immigrated to England in the 1880s, working as a hairdresser in Whitechapel during the time of the murders. It wasn't until a century later that Aaron Kosminski was identified as the Kosminski in police reports, but it's unclear as to why exactly he was suspected of the murders. Recently, his name was thrown back into the spotlight of the case when it was suggested that the shawl belonging to Catherine Eddowes had been tested for DNA and that it was closely matched to what Kosminski's DNA would have shown. However, the veracity of this claim is a little difficult to pin down. There seems to be experts who are both for and against Kosminski being the ripper. In any case, Kosminski being named both now and contemporaneously to the crime carries racial connotations, whether or not we realise we're doing it. Historian Drew Gray suggests that Kosminski only fit into the frame in the first place because he was a Jew and fit the stereotype of the killer, which itself stemmed from xenophobia and anti-Semitism. Michael Ostrog was also named as a suspect. In fact, Sir Melville McNaughton named him among his three prime suspects, describing him as a Russian doctor and a convict who was subsequently detained in a lunatic asylum as a homicidal maniac. This man's antecedents were of the worst possible type and his whereabouts at the time of the murders could never be ascertained. Today, with over 500 suspects, it is difficult not to get carried away. Later theories proposed by authors and ripperologists include some famous and perhaps surprising names. H.H. Holmes, with his own sordid track record, appears on the list, famous for his Chicago murder castle, he was rumoured to have been in London at the time of the Whitechapel murders, and some deduced that he could have been Jack himself. Perhaps the most famous name, however, is Prince Albert Victor, Duke of Clarence and Avondale. He is a favourite of fictional accounts of the murders, and at least two um, films, Murder by Decree in 1979 and From Hell from 2001, centre on his suspected role in the murders. 
The prince was involved in a number of scandals involving sex workers, including the so-called Cleveland Street scandal, in which he was suspected of being a client of an all-male brothel. However, none of the scandals during his lifetime would come close to what he had been accused of long after his death. His name was not put forward until 1962, when Philippe Julien uh, alluded to the rumours detailed in the prince's father's biography. A theory put forward in an article by uh, Dr Thomas Stowell suggests that the prince carried out the rampage himself after contracting syphilis. Stowell later denied making the accusation and died before he could be questioned further. Another theory surrounding the prince was that it was a conspiracy to cover up an illegitimate child. Supposedly, the prince had married a Catholic shop girl who had had his son. The plot to silence those in the know supposedly included Queen Victoria herself, the police, the Prime Minister and a number of Freemasons. It was later admitted that the tale, as told by Joseph Sickett to author Stephen Knight, was in fact fiction. Today, most of the theories surrounding the prince have been debunked, largely due to documented evidence that he wasn't in London at the time of the murders. There are many more suspects, perhaps even a never-ending list. And in the end, we may never know Jack's real name, if Jack's real name is on that list. Nevertheless, the enigma and alluring mystery of the Whitechapel murderer remains, as does the question, who was Jack the Ripper? Thank you for listening to Season 1 of Canonical True Crime. We'll be back with Season 2 soon. Sources for this week's episode include jacktheripper.org, casebook Jack the Ripper, Whitechapel Jack, the Texas State University, and more. A full list is available on our website, canonicaltruecrime.com. Follow us on Instagram at canonicaltruecrime to keep up to date with all the latest news and be the first to know when a new season begins. Rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. You can also listen on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If we aren't on your favourite platform, let us know and we'll do our best to get on there.